Exodus chapter 7. Then the Lord shall said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water in the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, before us is your holy word, whereby by the power of your spirit, you speak to us today, reminding us of how our hearts are often hardened to you. Soften our hearts today to receive your word. And seal to our spirit these promises that are ours, that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Speak through our beloved pastor, we pray, that we may hear these promises. And that we may live in these promises as we leave this place saying it's been good to have been in the house of the Lord. Thanks be to you, the only one worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, friends, be seated. So good to be together around God's Word, living, powerful, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. If you were going to 
tell somebody what the purpose of the book of Exodus was, I wonder what you'd say. Ross Blackburn, who recently wrote and commented uh, on this book, has argued that the purpose of Exodus is to show the missionary heart of God. Here's what he says. The Lord's commitment to be known as God throughout the earth is the motivation driving everything he does in Exodus. From the manner in which he delivers Israel from Egypt to the reason that he gives Israel the law to the way that he responds to Israel's idolatry. The missionary heart of Exodus speaks to both the Lord's governing commitment to be known as God throughout the world and the way that this missionary commitment unites the various materials of the book. I think it's as good as any uh, description of the purpose of the book of Exodus. We, we've sort of put it this way in terms of our sermon series. As we walk through the book of Exodus, we come over and over again to this invitation to God's people, this invitation to everybody to believe that He is God, to believe the, the truths of what He is communicating, and to belong, to become a follower of Jesus, to become a follower of Yahweh. Uh, that is the missionary heart of the book of Exodus. And I want to dive into it a little bit more, picking up the story where we are now. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that God has a people that He has selected not because they are good. In fact, we see them in Egypt worshiping other gods, and we're going to see them later on worship other gods and all of that, but they're His people. Uh, he loves them because, because He has set His affection on them, uh, because it will ultimately be for His glory. He selected Moses uh, to lead them out. Moses has been a bit slow of foot and slow of uh, mouth to want to follow the Lord, and yet, nonetheless, God selected Moses because, uh, because he was God's choice, not necessarily because he was the most gifted, or, but he's been orchestrating things, and now comes the time when they are going to go head-to-head with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. He is the most powerful person in the world that day. He himself fashions himself to be a god, uh, and he is worshipped as a god by the, the people of Egypt. And over the next several chapters, we are going to see the clash of gods. Uh, it is going to be Yahweh versus the gods of Egypt. Next week, we're going to look a little more closely at the, at the plagues in general. We're going to see how each plague, whether it be the Nile and, and the god Happy, uh, H-A-P-I, or whether it be the frogs and the god Hika, who has a frog face, all of the plagues are targeted specifically as an attack on an Egyptian god. Uh, and, and we're going to see this conflict. But I want to sort of give us the prologue this week. It's really interesting. It's chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, has this sort of interlude before the conflict really begins. And, and Moses and Aaron go in. 
They confront Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians are, are there with him. We have this situation where uh, Aaron throws down his staff or the staff of God that was Moses's, becomes a serpent. The magicians do the same thing by their secret arts, it tells us in verse 12. Their staves as well become serpents, and then Aaron's staff uh, swallows up their serpents. What, what is all of this about? How do we begin to get our minds around it? Didn't print an outline for you, but I have just two points. They each have a couple subpoints, but uh, we'll, we'll make our way through that. Uh, the two points are this. We have principalities and powers uh, versus the finger of God. All right, so principalities and powers. Let's start there. Let's start with these magicians because we have questions, don't we? Like, what is going on there? We understand from our previous reading that God gave specific powers to Moses, or he gave him the ability to communicate the power of God through the serpent. But what about these magicians? Like, we didn't really see that coming. We didn't expect that they would be able to throw down their staves and they would become serpents. We certainly didn't think that they would have the ability to turn the water of the Nile River into blood, and we didn't see it coming that they could create frogs coming out of the Nile River and going into all of the houses as we see later on in chapter 8. So what is going on with these magicians? What do they teach us about the world? What do they teach us about this conflict uh, between Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and the gods of Egypt? Here's what they teach us. They teach us that there is a conflict in this world, that there is Yahweh, God, and there is a, a counter power. There is a power that is very real, a power that can be tapped into, a power that can display itself in things that go beyond our rational ability to understand. Some have tried to look at the plagues and look at the abilities of the magicians and see either a sleight of hand, you know, sort of an illusionist David Copperfield type thing, or to see a natural explanation for things. Some have suggested that a cobra, now I've never tried this, you can try it if you want, uh, but there is a place behind the hood of a cobra where if you grab it right, it it causes the body to be paralyzed uh, for a moment, and they've suggested, well, maybe there were some paralyzed cobras that looked like staves, and then when they got thrown down, they actually turned into the serpent. But I don't think that's what's going on here, and neither does Phil Riken, who comments on this passage. He's like, what's going on with these magicians? How did they duplicate Aaron's demonstration? Was it sleight of hand, David Copperfield-ish? Was it a natural trick of a paralyzed snake appearing like a staff? Rather than seeking some sort of natural explanation, it's better to concede that Pharaoh's priests, magicians, sorcerers, perform their wonders by the power of Satan. When the Bible speaks of secret arts, as it does here four times, 712 and, and later on, uh, when the Bible speaks of secret arts, it refers specifically to demonic spells and incantations. So there is a power in this world that belongs to Satan. And, and Satan can utilize that power in very demonstrative ways. 
uh, very, you know, ways that, that defy logic, ways that seem miraculous to us. Sometimes we struggle with this. You know, we're, I, I don't know exactly how you judge cultural trends and how we think about these. There, in one sense, we can think about ourselves coming out of a, a real naturalistic phase that went from the Enlightenment, you know, right, sort of to now, where everything was science. You know, there was truth and, and there was objective truth in that way and uh, you could, it was all materialistic, things that you could taste and smell and hear and, and that, was, that was what we believed in. So God got pushed out, right? The supernatural got pushed out in that universe and, and everything was, was in the right here, right now at our fingertips. I say we're coming out of that because it seems that you know, people are more open to the presence of the supernatural. They're, they're more open to things that, that can't be explained by science. Let me just share a couple of sources for that. Carrie Paul, in an article entitled, Why Millennials Are Ditching Religion for Witch, Witchcraft and Astrology, says this, Interest in spirituality now, this is a recent article, has been booming. The psychic service industry, which includes astrology, aura reading, mediumship, tarot card reading, palmistry, among other medical, uh, metaphysical services, is worth over $2 billion annually. Uh, another recent article, Newsweek, says this, we are, in, we are currently in the middle of an occult revival says Jesse Bransford, a New York University art professor who co-organized an occult humanities conference. He sees a connection between increasing interest in the occult and the growth of anxiety. Magic has always been a technique of the disenfranchised, he says. It's something that you do when the tools you have available don't seem like they are enough. Some 20-somethings told Newsweek they appreciate the supernatural because it's a non-denominational method of self-exploration that reminds them that the world is both older and bigger than they are. It's embarrassing to admit you're religious, says one 27-year-old, but I think a lot of people my age are sick of being nihilistic. Spirituality is a lot cooler. What I want us just to stop and reflect on, and again, for, for all of us here, it might hit you differently depending on your age and stage of life, but the presence of a power in the world that is not God, a, a presence of a power in the world that actually comes from Satan. Uh, that Satan can do things that mystify us, that Satan can grant powers uh, that seem miraculous. And these things are, are very real, and I would say they're, they're not to be trifled with. You know, I, I, I enjoy literature of all, of all sorts. I enjoy fantasy literature. Uh, sometimes I worry you know, for our young people that things of, of magic and the supernatural and things that even borderline occultish uh, become very passe and ordinary for us. Um, again, we can read these things, we can make a distinction, but we have to make that distinction. And, and I think this is one of the things that this passage says is that it's very real. 
these secret arts. And it's very dangerous. And if you go down that path, you may not come back. Uh, there, there is real danger to be beheld, and we have to be careful. There is a supernatural that is out there. But some of us are a little more scullyish than Mulderish. If you know your X-Files, you know, Mulder is much more open to the supernatural. Scully uh, is very much um, with regards to the physical. And for that, I introduce to you Pharaoh. So the magicians are, are very much, you know, sort of the supernatural, and, and there is a warning there with the magicians. But Pharaoh... He is a man of our times, particularly if you go back to chapter 5, verse 2. Here is what Pharaoh says, and see if this is not uh, an attitude of modern humanity. Pharaoh says this, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I mean, is that not the sentiment of our hearts? Uh, we, we want to... Maybe acknowledge, maybe reject the supernatural, but whatever it is, we want to make sure that we are on the throne, and we call the shots, and we make the decisions on whether we are going to obey anyone or not. Now, Pharaoh clearly was a religious person. Egypt had something like 114 gods. Pharaoh himself was a god, but that's kind of the point, right? Uh, we believe Oftentimes, and we struggle with this, whether you are a Jesus follower or not, you know, we, we keep wanting to creep up onto the throne of our own hearts. And so we say with Pharaoh, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Prove to me that I am not king. Prove to me that I am not queen, that I am not the, the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, Right? And so we stand with Pharaoh, who very much rep, rep, represents this age of secularism that has rejected sort of the supernatural for the absolute autonomy of the individual. What I find is really interesting is how the Scriptures brings these two things together. If you have your Bibles, and, and really, I, I would encourage you to bring Bibles along with you if you can. We've got large chunks of scriptures in the next couple of weeks and can't print it all like we would like to. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, did you know that these magicians have names? Uh, I, I think I had forgotten this in, in studying this again. Um, was reminded of this. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy about godlessness in the last days. He says, understand this, in the last days there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, uh, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying his power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
that's a pretty accurate access assessment of the world around us and even you know, the directions of our own hearts. I don't want to make this an us versus them uh, because we recognize that the, the line of good and evil runs right through the heart of every person. Uh, the, the issue is our willingness to surrender to the Lord Jesus, as we'll get to in just a minute. But this is a pretty accurate assessment. In 2016, there was, uh, do you know what the word of the year was in 2016? Anybody who wasn't at the first service? <laughs> it was post-truth. Post-truth was a word of the year in 2016. It defined as being relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Post doesn't so much mean after as it just implies a notion that uh, this thing is irrelevant. So truth is irrelevant. And that's exactly what Paul is warning the, the first century church of. And he's saying this is what is going to be uh, becoming more and more manifest in the days to come. And I think we look at it and we say, yes, you know, this is the type of thing that we experience. This is the type of thing that we battle. But then notice verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so the men that we... Uh, currently encounter, the, the folks that we currently encounter, also oppose the truth, corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. What I find so interesting is that scriptures pull all of the supernatural powers all of the sort of postmodern, post-truth relativism, secular age stuff right together and brings us to this encounter, to Jonas and Jambres opposing Moses. And God is saying, this is emblematic of the war that is taking place. You are being led by the culture either to trust in other false gods, or to trust in yourself as God, the magicians or Pharaoh. And there is a post-truth war for your heart, for my heart. And the invitation of Exodus is Yahweh wants to make himself known. And Yahweh is going to make himself known in a big way. He is going to make himself known by simply flexing his little finger. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 19. I love this. I love the fact that it's the magicians that say this too. So, in the first two plagues, uh, so we had the snakes, that's the prologue, right? Then we have the plague, the Nile turning to blood. Then we have the plague of the frogs going everywhere. I, I, the, the description of that is rather uh, chilling. Uh, if you look at the beginning of chapter 8, 
He says, I will plague your country with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs that shall come into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into your houses uh, of your servants, your people, and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and upon all your people and all your servants. I mean, that is a total disgusting mess. Right? Can you imagine all those frogs in your kneading bowls? It's going to make you look at your lunch a little bit differently today. But God is so powerful and so comprehensive in his ability to cause the Nile to turn to blood, frogs to come upon the earth, uh, the gnats to descend upon Egypt, that in chapter 8, verse 19, when the, the magicians who tried by their secret arts to produce gnats but could not, the first time that they show their limitation and their inability, then the magician said to Sarah, Pharaoh, this is the finger of of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. You see, all of the principalities and all of their powers and the things that they are able to do, God circumvents, trumps, supersedes with his finger. I, I love that image because it's the nations raging, it's the gods of the heavens, small g, raging against Yahweh. And just his finger. And they are defeated. I mean, you notice the limitation of the Egyptians, right? They can only replicate the things that they can do. They cannot reverse it. Uh, Pharaoh or Moses, through God through Moses and Aaron, reverses the blood curse on the Nile. He reverses the frogs. They disappear from the land. The only thing that the magicians are able to do is replicate it. And they just, they add death. Uh, to the land. You know, their, their secret arts, powerful as they may be, are, are simply a cause of more destruction. It's almost like Pharaoh gets frustrated with him, like, stop making frogs. You know, we want to get rid of these things, but they are unable to do it. And then throughout, you know, from, uh, from plague number three on, the magicians are powerless. The last time we see them actually is in the sixth plague, the boils, chapter 9, verse 11. The magicians couldn't even stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils had come upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. They, they couldn't save themselves. God's power, might, majesty, total. He can take the creation which he made you know, the heavens and the earth, the waters, the rivers, all of that. And he can unmake it, which is very much uh, sort of a picture of the plagues, a chaos descending. But then he can reverse the chaos. The only thing that the magicians can do is cause more chaos. But our God, our God, Yahweh, with his finger is mighty, mighty, mighty. The second thing that we note here, you know, we see the finger of God. We see that he is mighty in his power. The second thing that we note is that he is merciful to deliver. How do we see that? Well, you've got to pay attention, and you've actually already had a clue in your worship service. See if you paid attention. There's a key word here, and we first experience it in Exodus chapter 7, verse 12. 
in that verse, we see Aaron throwing down his serpent, the magicians coming, throwing down, th- throwing down their staffs that become serpents, and then Aaron's uh, serpent going and swallowing up the staffs of the magicians. Now, I, that must have been really gross. Uh, either his serpent became enormously huge, unhinged its jaws, and then gobbled them all up one by one, or, you know, went and, or gobbled them up together, or went individually. I I don't know what it was like. But there is a picture here that God is giving us of his mercy. Now, you might think it's judgment, uh, and it certainly is displaying his power, But it's a picture of his mercy because in his mercy, he is delivering the people of Israel. And the next time that we encounter that word swallow, we come to Exodus chapter 15. Now, the Israelites have been set free from Egypt. They are on the other side of the Red Sea and and Moses uh, composes this song and Miriam is dancing before the Lord. And they say, who is a God like you? Among the, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. You see, they are tracing the theme that God is powerful, and He is merciful to deliver His people. He's deliver, merciful to deliver those who will follow Him. Now, do you know where we encountered that word earlier in the service? A couple of you are nodding your heads. When we come to the ministry of Jesus Christ, who went into, who became a human being, he went to the cross, went into the earth, and then rose again from the dead. How does Paul talk about that? He says, you have swallowed death in victory. Death is now defeated and the victory of Christ stands supreme. You see, when we come to this all-powerful Yahweh, this all-powerful God of the Hebrews, we come to the one who not only has the might to be displayed, but he has the mercy to save his people. He has the mercy to enter into their situation. And this is what we are all invited to see today. No matter where you are on your journey, and we're all on a journey at some point in relation to God. Some of you may be looking at Him from a distance, ready to turn away, saying, there's nothing here for me. Others of you may be walking very close to the person of Jesus. But what we are asked to consider, what we're invited to consider, is that there is a being in the universe who is all-powerful, and there is a being who is willing to swallow up death itself so that you can have life. And this is something that only God can do. The magicians could only produce death. But Jesus alone has the power to swallow death in order that life might live in its train and that you and that I can enjoy life everlasting. What does that mean for us? Well, it it means we surrender. A lot of us are like Pharaoh, right? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? 
And the invitation is, the Lord is the one who is full of might and full of mercy. And you can choose not to obey him, but see how that gets you. You know, you're not going to get very far in life. Or you can surrender. You can say, yes, I'm willing to step down off the throne of my own life. That involves repentance. But it's a grace because God is there saying, look at I've paid for your sin. It's all taken away in Jesus. Swallowed up death in order that you might have life. Will you find it in me? Two other things I want to note uh, just as applications. So we have mighty, merciful, invitation to surrender. This is proper confidence. I have a fair amount of confidence. Usually it's arrogance. You know, oftentimes it's misplaced confidence. But here what we're talking about this morning is proper confidence. Confidence not in ourselves, but in God. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples as they were going out into the world? He said, in this world you will have trouble. Because there are real powers that are arrayed against God. And, and, and you are going to fight and you are going to battle and you are going to bleed because of those powers. But, he said, take heart. I have overcome the world. The Apostle John says it this way. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Brothers and sisters, we have so much confidence. We have so much reason for proper confidence, not in ourselves. Please stop looking at ourselves, and I'm speaking that to myself, and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our confidence, but it is confidence. So as you go out into this week as fathers and mothers, as sons and daughters, as friends, as neighbors, as co-workers, into every place that you go, you have confidence because Jesus has led the way. And Jesus is greater than he who is in the world. We have confidence to go forward. Please, we need, we need not be the oligopistoi, the little-faithed ones. We have reason to step up and to be full of confidence. I'll just say, can I say that especially to fathers? You know, it's Father's Day. I, I am so grateful for the, the calling that God has given me and God has given you as fathers. I'm realizing as I turned 50 this year and you have a number of kids that legally qualify as adults. <laughs> as I said, legally. I uh, love my kids. Um, I'm realizing that you're never done being a father. Uh, and, and we're never done relating to our fathers, Right? But there is so much confidence here in a world that would pull the, the chair out from under us and, and would diminish and demean uh, the, the importance of carrying out fatherly responsibilities in our life. God says, go out and be a father. I, I died. I, you have confidence, not in yourself, but in me. And I can go forward and I can lead you. And we can step into that together, but we can step into it looking at uh, the grace and the mercy and the power of our most loving and wonderful Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing, or the third thing, I guess, I'll just say in terms of application is 
praise. One writer puts it this way, perhaps the application in applying the plagues is, in a word, doxological. It is to praise. We praise, that is, we worship God for His fearful might and His great love, both of which He has employed for the sake of His beloved children. Praising God is not simply a lesser form of application or a rote thing that we might mention on a Sunday morning in church. Rather, it is so much of what the Bible is driving us towards. It is the goal of redemption itself, not to feel self-important by being part of God's club, but to turn ourselves away from our sinful inclination towards self-centeredness and to turn us humbly towards God. Will you join me in praising God today for His marvelous might and His wonderful mercy? Will you join me in humbling ourselves before Him and walking forward with confidence, knowing that He is Yahweh, our God and King? Father, we thank You for this word so old. 4,000-some years since these events took place, and, and yet, and yet, so relevant for today. Lord, I pray for each one of our hearts here, uh, so much caught this way and that. We see so much running right down the middle of our hearts. Lord, where we have faith, strengthen it. Where there is doubt, uh, erase it, turn our eyes to Jesus. Lord, we particularly pray for those among us who are, are further away from that surrender. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would descend into all of our hearts, but in especially those hardened hearts. May we not be like Pharaoh and harden our hearts time and again when the word and the sign is before him. But may we be soft and like little children come into the kingdom of heaven. We thank you, Father, for your good and gracious word. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.